Good morning. My name is Julia Trochi. I'm going to be reading the passage this morning. We're going to be in Exodus 19. If you don't care to turn with me. Exodus chapter 19 will be starting in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on ear eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the Lord to the people, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the mountain, whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on the Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests come near to the Lord, consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. All right. Thanks, Julia. All right, good morning. You guys ready? Hey, Gary, are you ready? 
Yeah, there, I get the amen. Gary's my amen guy. Praise God for you, man. You're the amen guy that keeps us going. Hey, um, keep, your, keep your spot next to this night team. But if you don't know me, my name's JT. I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful that everybody is here today. I'm really excited about our passage today. Um, but hey, something I wanted to follow up on what Corey said is, um, I was at John B. Hughes a week from last Saturday. And then this Thursday um, was the day that we gave kids, we gave all the kids in Williams Elementary School a pair of shoes. We're partnering with, one sole purpose. And I, I, just, I just wanted to reiterate what she said because um, it's been a long time since I've been in Williams, right? I haven't been past the lobby other to, than to Miss Dessa, the principal's office. I haven't been once in the last year, right? That's weird. Like we've been in Williams. If you're new to Freshwater, Williams Elementary is the elementary just right down the street. We, we launched the church inside Williams Elementary. It's been a huge part of who we have been since the very beginning. In the last year and a half, it hasn't been. Like we, I don't know if you know this, but for Teachers Appreciation Week, um, we gave gift cards to all, all they, they, we gave them like 10 different gift cards that they were giving away to the teachers and we sent Chick-fil-A for the entire staff. And so we've still been loving them in ways that we can, but actual engagement has been distant. And this has been the same thing with Tom Watkins' neighborhood. It had been the same thing with John B. Hughes, not only because of COVID, but that door just shut like three, three years ago and now it's been opened up wide for us. And all of this to being said, like church, things are changing quickly. Right, the CDC is changing what they're recommending. Everything's, everything's starting to change right now. And I'm telling you, being at Williams was like being at a homecoming. Because we let all the kids try on shoes outside. It was a beautiful day, so they all came outside. I got to see all of the kids. I got to see all of the teachers. I got to see the staff. Do you know how long it's been since I've seen some of those teachers? And it was like a homecoming. It was like a reunion with a lot of them. It was so good. And Williams is so excited about this fall. I mean, they're planning on having a big back-to-school bash, big party that's going to be kind of ran by Freshwater's volunteers, right? And so I just want you to start praying now. We've already got opportunities at John B. Hughes once a month all the way through next year. But next, year, next, next fall, we're going to start again becoming who we really are. You know what I mean by that? We've kind of lost it. Because of COVID and because of other things. Like, I was having a conversation with Will and Bianca the other day, and they didn't even really know that we were a mission, international missions church. Because since they've been here, we haven't really been on any international missions. How, for those of who have been around, how crazy is that? Like, from the first, from the, when we launched the church, we were immediately going to international missions. It didn't take very long at all. It's who we are. Being in the neighborhood, being at John B. Hughes, being at Tom Walker's neighborhood, being at Williams, loving our city, and then taking the gospel to the nations is who we are. But this last year has kind of robbed us of that. Well, no more, church. So right now, I want you to start praying for your heart and your mind and where God is going to use you. Because we are a church, as you know, where we don't, we don't invite people to come sit in the seats and watch and listen. Of course, come on Sunday morning. Of course, hear good preaching that, that's faithful to the world, word. But man, other than that, we are a community of people. We want you in life groups. We want you discipleship. And we want you on mission. That's who we are. And that's who we've always been. And it's been so easy over the last year and a half or so to get used to being at home, get used to being distant, get used, get, getting used to sitting around watching TV because there's nothing, nowhere to go and nothing to do. We got to break the cycle, church. And we're getting opportunities now. So I want you to start praying right now for our church and for you, for God to break those cycles, for God to remind us of who we are, man, just as his people, but who we are as freshwater, amen? Because it's gonna be hard for some of us. It's gonna be hard for us to, some of us to create again that, that new pattern of who we are, but be ready for it, all right? Amen? Amen, we're gonna recapture it. Okay, so um, let me just jump in because today's a big week. 
This is a big week in our Exodus series because this week is a major transition in this book. And so if you're here for the first time or you haven't been here in a while, we're walking through the book of Exodus, right? And what we've seen so far is God free his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt just in miraculous, crazy amazing ways, awesome ways. We've seen them lead them through the desert by smoke and by fire and by, by feeding them from bread from heaven that just shows up in the morning and from when Moses struck a rock and water pours out and they've been traveling through the desert. But now they've actually arrived at Mount Sinai. And this is a big deal. This is where the rest of this book is going to take place at this mountain. And, and I'm not exaggerating when I say some of the most important things in our faith are about to play out starting this week. Like things that we're going to we need to understand and that are going to play out throughout the rest of the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. And so I thought I'd give you guys a couple pictures just so you could get a visual of this. So Dustin, can we get up that first picture? Because I want you to be able to see, actually see this. Other one? So just so you can picture it, I don't know if you can see it from back there, but right along the Red Sea, there's that brown line. Can you guys see it? That, that's kind of like what we think was the path of the Exodus. We don't know for sure, but this is right out of your ESV study Bible. So if you've got an ESV Bible, it's, it's in the back or an ESV study Bible, you can find this. And so I just wanted you to picture, they came from Egypt, now they're all the way down there in the south. Can you see it down there? The people in the back. We don't know where Mount Sinai is, but we think it was somewhere in this general area, which Midian is right here. This is where Moses' wife is from. And so you know he's just been reunited with his family, right? So they didn't have to travel that far to get down to here. They probably met somewhere around here. So in the, in the chapter, it's talking about how they traveled from here down to Mount Sinai. So I just want you to be able to picture how far they've actually come through the desert. And so that's where we are, Mount Sinai there in the south. Okay, now the next picture, Dustin. And I also wanted to give you this picture because they're now at the mountain, right? But I think when we say the mountain, some of us maybe picture the Rockies or maybe Mount Everest or something like that. Like this is a, a, a mountain in the desert. It was probably like a lonely mountain, a mountain that kind of stood alone. So not the Rockies, something more like this. Now we don't know that this is Mount Sinai. Some people think it is, right? We don't know exactly where Mount Sinai is, but it was probably something like this. So um, you can, I think there's people maybe right there, maybe not. But you can actually picture walking up, up to this mountain, right, and, and having to keep your distance. So it's not some big mountain with these gigantic foothills that go, go on and on. When they came up to Mount Sinai, it was probably something like this where they could actually walk right up to the mountain and see God's presence fall on it. Make sense? I want you guys to be able to kind of picture this so it wasn't some, some thing that was just kind of out there. This is the kind of thing that they're approaching right now. So as they, as they even now approached Mount Sinai, I thought it would be a good time to real quickly recap some of our themes from this book. Because you remember the theme, the three major themes from this book are one, God's covenant faithfulness, that God is faithful to his people because he made a covenant with their father, Abraham. He made covenants with him that he would be with them, that he'd be for them, and he's kept his promises. And through, those covenant, through that covenant faithfulness, our second theme, God's deliverance, that God delivers his people, right? And that's why the theme of this book is kingdom to kingdom. He delivered them from the kingdom of man, from the kingdom of Pharaoh to his kingdom. He's delivering them to his kingdom. And then our third and last theme is God's presence. God's presence among his people. And so that's going to matter today because the, the overarching theme of Exodus, really the overarching theme of the entire Bible is God's glory, right? And so in the first half of this book, right, the first 18 chapters, we saw God's glory primarily displayed through his covenant faithfulness to his people and his miraculous deliverance of them in Egypt. 
But the second half, this is a major transition, the second half of this book, the way we're going to see God's glory displayed to the world more clearly is going to be through Israel's covenant faithfulness to God. You see the difference? The first half was God's covenant faithfulness to his people. The second half is it's going to begin to be displayed through God's, through Israel's covenant faithfulness back to God. And that's where we start off in chapter 19. And chapter 19 starts off with a, with a bang. But here's the problem I ran into. I was talking with Brandon about this all week. As I worked through this chapter, I decided that we really needed um, about six different sermons to cover it correctly. But I'm really excited about our series this fall, and we can't spend another year in Exodus. We're just not going to. Do you, does anybody know what we're doing this fall? Have I said it yet? We're going to be doing the book of John, the gospel of John. I can't wait. It's going to be a beautiful transition from Exodus to John, too, because there's just so much that go together. Can't wait to do John this fall. So I, well, we just can't spend that much time in Exodus But at the same time, there's so much to say because really this chapter right here, chapter 19, sets the foundation for the rest of the Pentateuch. For Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, it sets sets the groundwork really for the rest of the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm just going to stay super focused and not spend all the time that I would like on each, each topic. So here's what I need you to do. And I mean this, like hear this. Don't, this is not just pastor talking. Listen to this. Over the next couple weeks, I want you to spend some time in chapter 19. I want you to spend some time in chapter 19 thinking about what, is, what does this chapter say about who God is? And I know I say things like that all the time, but God is declaring in chapter 19 who he is. We really start to be able to wrap our minds around the enormity and the holiness of God in chapter 19. So I want you to read it and think about what is this actually saying about who our God is? Secondly, I want you to think, read, and really think deeply about who does this say, what does this say about who we are in God and how we are to respond to God, right? Because this is telling us how God wants us to respond to him. This, this chapter is telling us what worshiping God really is. And then the rest of the Exodus is really going to play that out more fully. And then I, I want you to spend some time, the last one, so think about who God, what this says about God, how this says how we are to respond to God, and lastly, how this, I want you to study how this potentially lays the foundation for really the rest of the Bible, but in particular the Old Testament, because it does Spend some time in this. Hey, and if you spend some time in it and you've got questions, email me. Email me. But considering all those things, I had to kind of choose what to focus in on today. And so after some prayer, I landed on this. Here's what we're going to be focusing in on today. With Israel, with God's people, God is not just creating a people of his own, which he is doing, but he is creating a holy nation of priests with the primary goal of displaying his holiness and glory to the world. That's what God's trying to accomplish here. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation that will display his glory to the world. He's done it through his miraculous signs. Now he's creating a people that will do it, a holy nation. But here's the problem, right? Here's the problem we're going to run into immediately. We're going to have to address today. The people of Israel are going to prove again and again and again that they are incapable of sustaining holiness, Therefore, they're not going to make great priests most of the time. Not all the time, most of the time. And here's the thing about this. This may have happened three or 4,000 years ago, but we're just like them. We're not better than them. So if, if they seem so incapable of this, and we seem to be so incapable of this, what hope do we have? What hope do we really have of becoming what we're supposed to be? The image bearers of God that declare his glory to the world. So if I could sum up the answer to that problem, how do we become what we're supposed to be? 
If I could sum up the answer to that problem in one word, it would be this, worship. That's really what the second half of Exodus is about, worship. How we worship God so that we can be what he meant for us to be. And so with that, let's dive back into verse one and let's start playing out how does worship lead us to be a holy nation, lead us to be the priests that God's called us to be. So read verses one through six with me again in chapter 19, verses one through six. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. That means up the mountain. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you, brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So right out of the gate here at Mount Sinai, God is setting up his plan and his expectations of his people. God is saying to them, listen, because of my covenant faithfulness to you, because I delivered you, you shall keep the covenant that I'm requiring of you. This is a big deal for them to keep the covenant that God is requiring of them. Now, the passage doesn't really tell us, but what is this covenant? Does anybody know what the covenant actually is? It's the law, right? Next week, you know what we're going to be in next week? The Ten Commandments. And then we're going to get law, 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 right? We're going to get law for a long time. I think, I think Brandon's going to cover like seven chapters of law in one sermon. Good luck with that. He took it over for me because I needed him to. God bless him. Pray for Brandon. He's got a monumental task next week. We're not, by the way, we're not going to read seven chapters next week. We can't, we can't do that. We'd be here just reading. The, but anyway, I'm, gonna, I'm getting derailed. Lydia, keep me on track, please. All right, so the law, that's what the covenant is. It is the law. But listen, they don't even really fully know that yet. God has given them some laws, and he has given them some commands, and he's telling them to obey this. But what, what they fully have to obey, they don't even know yet. So God's saying, I want you to trust me and have faith in me and obey, obey me, because he's about to give them the covenant. But there was something really interesting that happened here that hasn't really happened before, at least not in the same way. There's a key word and God telling them about this covenant. Do you know what that key word was? If. Do you hear me? If. If you keep my covenant. If you keep my covenant, you will be my most treasured possession on earth. And we're going to find out later in the chapter when he says, my treasured possession, that means that he's going to bless them, he's going to protect them, and he's going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? He's going to help them conquer some of the most powerful nations around them so they can have their land. This is what God's promising them. If you'll be a holy nation, you'll be my kingdom of priests, if. We call this a conditional covenant. And listen, not all the covenants that God makes with his people are conditional, right? Sometimes he just says, this is what's going to happen. This is my covenant to you. I'm going to do this thing, right? But this is not one of those things. This one requires something of the people. It, It requires them keeping God's covenant. Now, there, if you've been with us, there is still a greater covenant over all of God's covenants. Like, for example, there's a covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12, where he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless every nation on earth. I'm going to bless every family on earth. And what was that promise pointing to? Somebody. 
Jesus, yeah, the church answers. Just yell out Jesus, right? Jesus, it's pointing to Jesus. Now, does God need all of the Israelites to be faithful to him to him accomplish his plan through Jesus Christ? No, so we don't really consider that a conditional promise because no matter what the Israelites did or no matter what we do, that was going to happen. We're gonna see that later with Moses when God's gonna say, Moses, I can destroy all these people and accomplish my covenant, my promises through you. I don't need all of them because they're rebelling so bad, but we'll get there, right? God is going to keep that promise no matter what, but this one is a conditional covenant. For, so for Israel to worship God properly, to, be, to truly be his people of blessing, his own people, they must keep the law. All of it. Not some of it. We're going to see that all through, all of it. Following the law is keeping the covenant. Following the law, hear me, following the law is proper worship. That's where we're going to see the rest of Exodus. Not only the law, but even in how they approach the temple, how they approach God's presence, how they build the temple. All of it's built around them keeping God's covenant. Now, just for clarity's sake, of course all of this has to be rooted in love for God and faithfulness, right? Sometimes we get a misperception of the Old Testament that God was just like, hey, you follow my law and you're good. No, like later on, like in Malachi and other prophets, it's, God's going to say to the people, man, you give me your sacrifices and you follow the law, but your hearts are far from me. I hate your sacrifices. He's saying, I hate how you're following the law because you don't love me and you don't love the poor and you don't love the people. So your law following is worthless. So Old Testament, New Testament, this is still about faith. And this is still about love for God and a love for people. Yes and amen. But for them to for them to really live in the love of God, the blessing of God, not only do they have to love God and be faithful, they have to follow his law. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, over time, how great are the people of Israel at fully keeping God's covenantal law? Terrible, right? At times they do okay. At times they do okay, but overall, they're terrible at keeping the law. So what do we do? Well, we're going to come back to that, right? That's something, I'm going to set some things aside as we go through this chapter. We're going to come back to the importance of keeping the covenant of law and what do we do when they're terrible at keeping it. But what I want you to see right now, for the, the, for our first point for today, is first and foremost, to worship God faithfully, to worship God in the way he's calling us to, we must follow the law. Or another way of saying that, we must keep God's covenant. And if they do, the result of that is they will be God's holy nation. They will be his kingdom of priests. In the end, this is God's goal for them, to worship him properly and then to be his missionaries to the world. So do you know what this tells us? It was never God's plan to only share his glory and his goodness with the Israelites. A lot of people had the misconception about that of the Old Testament too. Well, God just loved the Jews. No. Now, were they his chosen people? Yes. But, but, but they were meant to be a people set apart as holy. Do you know what that, that's, that's what holy really means? To be set apart. To be different. And in our case, to be set apart, to be like God. To be holy. To bear his image. They, so, Israelites were chosen to be set apart so they might display God's awesome glory to the world. That's really what the law does. Do you realize that? We look at the law as a bunch of rules, but the, the law was there to guide them into proper worship, to protect them, to guard them, and to set them apart from the nations around them. To set them apart as holy so they didn't look like the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Edomites and all of those sinful nations. No, God says, I want you to be different. I want you to reflect my glory and my holiness. I want you to be set apart. And so that's why he gave the law. So then in the end, they could worship him properly, be an example as a kingdom of priests. Make sense? 
So this was never just about the Israelites. And so in the first, as I said before, in the first half of Exodus, God's glory was primarily displayed through miracles and awesome works and judgment. But the second half is about his set-apart people displaying his glory as priests and God training them to do that. And so before we move on, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Do you, scripturally, do you know what a priest is? A priest scripturally basically is just a go-between. Not just a go-between, this is important, but they're a go-between. A go-between between God and his people. A mediator, basically. So the priests were to teach people about God, about God's character, about his law, and then teach them to draw closer to God in proper worship. It's basically what pastors do now in a lot of ways, right? To be priests. So when it says, I want you to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests, he's not talking about the Levitical priests that are going to come here in just a minute under the law that are going to come from the line of Aaron. They're important too, but he's talking more generally about how they are to be a representation of God's glory to the world, to be a mediator for the rest of the world about who God is, and so they can display his glory. That's really what the law ultimately is about, to display God's glory. And the first picture we see of this is how this is accomplished is through proper worship by keeping God's covenant. We're going to see that reiterated in verse 7, but we're also going to see something else that seemingly is needed for proper worship of God. So look at verse 7. Chapter 19, verse 7. We're going to read through verse 9a. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answer together. This is all the people. This is all the Israelites. They answer together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, meaning Moses went back up on the mountain and reported it to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So God's not only going to have his presence come, but he's going to speak to Moses out of the cloud so the people will absolutely know that Moses truly is the prophet of God. So again, we see the importance of keeping the covenant, right? In verse 8, the, the people actually agree to the requirement of keeping God's covenant, even though they don't fully know what it is yet. They're like, God, we'll obey you. We'll follow you. We'll, ha- we'll, we'll be faithful to your commands. That's what they're agreeing to. And this moment ends up being a really big deal. Not only because they have to keep this covenant through the rest of the Old Testament, but in here, just a few chapters, they're going to break the covenant almost right away. Almost right away, they're going to break this covenant. And if it wasn't for Moses as their mediator, it would have went really, really, really badly. Really badly. So, we know for proper worship, we've got to keep the covenant, but... What else in this passage, you may not have caught this, but what else seems to be needed for proper worship? A mediator. Did you see it? In verse 3, and verse 7, and verses 8 and 9, and lots of other passages, we see Moses going up the mountain to represent the people to God, and then coming back down the mountain to represent God to the people. He's a mediator between God and the people to represent kind of both sides, Right? So it seems that we need a mediator for proper worship. Now, this could just be a one-off with Moses, right? It's just the story of Moses, and it's Moses. So maybe it was just Moses that needed to be a mediator like this. But with the coming of the law in the coming weeks, we'll see that God will not just give them 
a mediator like Moses, but he's going to give them actual priests, priests from the Levitical line, priests that that is their job. That's what they do. They are priests to be mediators between God and his people. Like the whole, the whole system is really built on this, that we need mediators between God and us. And so this is important because God decided it's important. I don't even really know why it's important until we get to the end of my sermon today. I do know why, what it's all pointing to, hint, right? But God has just decided that we need mediators. Because think about it this way. Moses came down, told the people God's commands, right? You need to follow his covenant. They all agreed to do it. And then what did Moses do? He went back out up the mountain and told God all about it, that, they, that the people have agreed. Now, do you think God needed Moses to come up to the mountain to tell him that all the people agreed to the covenant for God to know what happened? Of course not, right? He's God. This is just simply how God has chosen to interact through his people, right? A, a person that represents him and someone who represents the people, and that those two things come together. This is how God has chosen for this to work. So from this point on, if you didn't know this, Moses, for the Israelites, Moses will be the representation for the rest of the Old Testament of what a prophet is. He is the prophet. He is the priest. When they think of what a prophet, what a priest is supposed to be, they think of Moses, and secondarily on the priest side, they think of Aaron. But Moses is the guy. He is the mediator. So again, like we are with the covenant, we're going to come back to the importance of the mediator in a minute. But so far, what we've seen for proper worship of God and for them to be a, and out of that, if they worship God properly, to become a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, they need to keep God's covenant, keep his law, and they need a mediator to re- represent the people to God and God to the people. So the second part of verse 9 through the end of the chapter will show us what else the people of Israel need to do or to understand for proper worship of God. Read it with me. When I say the second half of verse 9, that'll be the beginning of the paragraph. The beginning of the paragraph. So read with me to the end of the chapter. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate, remember that word, and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. This is a place where I want to spend a lot of time. TJ and I actually talked about that this week, right? On the third day, God's presence is going to be revealed to the people. On the third day, they're going to begin to understand God. On the third day, God's going to change things. Um, Man, that seems to be pointing to things in the future about a third day when Jesus is resurrected and shows people who he really is and they come into his presence. But I'm not for sure it's pointing to that and we don't have time. So study that this week. See what you think about it, but we got to keep going. Um, Where were we? Verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, that means whoever touched the mountain, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. All right. It's a lot to take in, but we're going to try to cover it. This is really the moment that we've been talking about since the beginning of the series. And what I mean by that is that the covenants, God's covenant faithfulness and their deliverance in the end was all about restoring God's people back into his presence. That's what really this whole thing is about. Listen, since Adam and Eve Since their sin, there has been an enormous gap between God and his people because of their sin. But this moment, as they leave their camp and they approach the mountain of God, this moment is a major step towards God slowly restoring what was lost in that garden. Like this is a restoration moment from the garden until now about God restoring what was lost. It's this huge moment biblically, huge moment biblically. So as God prepares the people to come to him, do you see what God is actually doing here? God is trying to clearly show the the people how holy he really is. He wants them to understand his holiness, how serious they need to take his holiness and how serious they need to take their holiness. Not only that, but God is setting up a pattern of worship that will be followed when the tabernacle comes soon and later in the temple that will be followed until the time that Jesus comes. This is setting up the rest of the Old Testament. It's really even setting us, setting us up to understand what it means to have the temple inside of us through the Holy Spirit when, when Jesus eventually comes. It's setting up all these things. So that, that yes, for proper worship, the people can and need and should come before the presence of God and that God wants his chosen people to know that they have found favor with him and that they come near him and that he accepts them, but but that will only happen fully and only on God's terms and by his stipulations. Because he's God. Hear me on this, church, and I want us to try to wrap our minds around this today. This is important, so listen to this. It's not complicated. God is holy, holy, holy. If we're going to pick a characteristic of God that might be above all other characteristics, it would be that God is holy, And we are not. And we are not. We are sinful and he is perfect. We are dirtied, which is represented here. We are dirtied by our rebellion, by our evil. He is pure. His holiness is a purifying fire that burns away sin and burns away evil. And the Israelites are just simply not holy enough to come fully before his presence. So God has chosen Mount Sinai as his sanctuary. That's what this is. Later it'll be the tabernacle, and then later after that it'll be the temple. But right now, on this mountain, God has chosen for his presence to fall on this mountain. So this mountain has become holy because it's where God's presence dwells on earth. So they may not approach it. Listen, they can't even touch it. Wrap your mind around that. It's so serious, the people are at such risk that God not only tells them that the penalty of breaking this command is death, that they're to be put to death, but that God himself may break out against them if they try to break through and come up the mountain. 
that seem extreme? But hear me, how much more serious do you think you would take the holiness of God? How much more serious do you think you'd take your own holiness if you were there to hear this command and then to see the awesome, terrifying, overwhelming presence of God fall on the mountain in smoke and thunder and lightning and fire as the whole earth rumbled beneath you? Coming from a God that loves you, that saved you, that delivered you, that did miracle after miracle after miracle to show you his glory and his love for you. But even that God that you know that loves you because he's proven it, when he comes before you, you tremble at his holiness and glory because he's so far beyond you. God is not like us. Yes, we're created in his image, right? And to a certain extent, we're like God because we're created in his image. But beyond that, we are not like him. He is beyond us. He is above us. He is set apart. And like any other lowly earthly king on the planet, the king gets to decide how and when we approach him. And the king of kings and the Lord of lords is declaring his holiness and showing us how we worship him properly in the proper respect. So even the washing of the garments and the saying to abstain from sex for a few days, you might read that and be like, what is going on there? Remember that word I told you to remember, consecrate? Moses was to come down off of the mountain and consecrate the people. Consecrate means to set apart. And here in this reference, it means to set apart as holy. So Moses was there to help consecrate the people, to set them apart so they might be as holy as they possibly could be before they come before the Lord, for he is holy and they are not. And so you think of the washing the garments. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with working really hard. A lot of these people are farmers and shepherds and all these other things. They're going to be dirty at the end of the day, right? Moms are working with their kids. Moms, you ever get dirty when the kids throw up all over you, right? Moms get dirty. People get dirty. Husbands, the kids changing diapers and it gets all over. So I got peed on multiple times, right? We get dirty. There's nothing wrong with taking care of your children, your family, or working hard and getting dirty. That's not the point here. And obviously from Scripture, there's nothing wrong with having sex with your spouse. It's celebrated in Scripture as a good thing, as a right thing, as a reflection of our relationship to God. No, it's, it's showing us a picture that because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we are dirtied by that thing. We are We are sullied by our sin. And so the washing of the garments is a representation of being as clean as we can before God because sin makes us dirty, but God makes us clean. And abstaining from sex, and so often the things in this world that derail most of us are not just like terrible outright sins. It's us putting too much focus on God's creation instead of our creator, and we lose our way. We lose our focus. And so abstaining from sex just for a few days is setting aside sex, representing earthly things that we put our focus on so that we can focus on God, make the creator, not the creation, the most important thing. It's the same thing we do when we fast, right? We fast from food so we can keep our focus on the creator and, re- and remember that creation doesn't sustain us, our creator does. Our creator does. So the whole point of this moment is to clearly show us that to worship in God's holy, holy, holy presence, we must also be holy. But then we immediately run into another problem, don't we? We immediately run into another problem. Are the people of Israel actually holy? No. And they prove it again and again, right away. So how can they draw close to God by going through this ritual if they can only still only draw so near to him? God's saying, come to me. 
But even going through this ritual, they, can, they still can't come up the mountain. They still can't even touch the mountain. They can still only get so near to God. There's still this difference. There's still this distance between them and God. And, and over time, what we're going to see as we've been talking about this sermon so far, what we're going to see is the people, the people of Israel are going to show that over time, they have trouble even maintaining just a minimal amount of holiness. Like I said, there are times when they do okay. Well, those are completely overwhelmed by the times that they're not even close. They're not even close. So with the exception of God's chosen mediator, Moses, and with the exception of Aaron and maybe a few priests, but even Moses is like, basically it seems like Moses is saying, I don't want to risk the priests, Lord, because you said this thing. And God's like, okay, bring Aaron with you. So with the exception of Moses, Aaron, and maybe a few priests, they, they can't even come near to God. They can't even really come into his presence. They're kind of coming before him, but not into his presence like Moses and Aaron will get to. So here's the thing. What we've seen so far for proper worship, they, to, to be, to become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests that display God's glory to the world, they must fully keep God's covenant, keep his law, which they don't, which they don't. They need a mediator to represent them before God and God before them and praise God for them. They have Moses right now. And like I said before, it would go terribly for them if they didn't have Moses. But you know, even Moses messes this thing up and doesn't get to go into the promised land. Moses, the representation of all good and right as a mediator, he doesn't get to go in the promised land because he messes up. And then, by the way, after this, the mediators just get worse and worse. Right? Joshua does a pretty good job, but a lot of the other mediators, it gets to the point where the mediators are the ones that lead the people astray to worship other gods. Like the mediators just completely derail. So they need to follow the law, which they don't. They need a mediator to go between them and God, which those fail. They need to respect the seriousness of God's holiness, which they fail miserably at. And they need to be holy themselves, which they can't accomplish. And finally, they need to come before God's presence, but are still kept at a distance because of their sin. So if that's what proper worship looks like, and it wasn't just a requirement of them, listen, that's still a requirement of us today. It's still a requirement. As Jesus said, the law was not abandoned. It was fulfilled in Jesus. So that's still a requirement of us today. So what hope do they have? And what hope do we have of not only properly worshiping God, but displaying his glory and his majesty to the world as his holy priests? Church, there is a reason that there is another covenant that is described by the Bible as a better covenant. Listen, this moment in Exodus, the coming of the law, the coming of the covenant is an extremely important moment. It's so important. It shows us the incredible seriousness of God's holiness and his requirements of our holiness for proper worship, right? The Old Testament covenant helps us to understand the magnitude and the depth and the seriousness of all these things. And that is extremely valuable for us to know and understand. This is not wasted because we're under the new covenant in Christ. It's not wasted on us to hear these things and to understand these things and to wrap our minds around the depth and seriousness, the holiness of God that is a good thing. But it's also a good thing and it's extremely valuable because it shows us of our inability to keep God's law, for our inability to be holy. And that for some of you, if you've heard this before, that, that might seem a little bit like God was setting them up to fail 
And might, you might think, like, how is that fair if God's requiring all this of them and they can't actually do it and we can't actually do it? Isn't God setting them up to fail? But listen, that's not what's going on here. That's not what God is doing. He is showing them and he's trying to show us that we were never meant to accomplish these things on our own. That we are incapable of accomplishing these things on our own. God never expected us to be fully good enough, holy enough, or righteous enough to actually fully keep all of these things. And that is a blessing. It's a blessing that God wanted us to see that, that God wanted, us to, sh- wanted to show us that so we could really understand what all of this is really about. Later, About a thousand years later, another prophet came named Jeremiah. I'm going to quote what Jeremiah said in chapter 31, verse 31. Dustin, can we get that up on the board? Jeremiah 31, 31 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. He's talking about the old covenant which we're talking about right now. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me. And hear me, this is not knowing about the Lord. This is not, this is not saying know God's laws. This is like in your soul, in your heart, you know him. You know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. Iniquity is sin, it's breaking the law, it's breaking God's commands. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Hear me, one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave us was to faithfully and patiently show us that we aren't enough. And growing up in a culture, in a society that wants to tell you like you're each a unique snowflake and it's all about you and you're great and you're wonderful and be the best you that you can possibly be. And if you just love yourself enough and you have enough self-care and you do all of these things, then you'll arrive and you'll be happy. And deep down, all of us know it's a lie. Of course, take care of yourself. Of course, we need to love ourselves. Of course, we need to be healthy. I'm not talking about those things. But like our whole society is like, you can be good enough. Just be you. And the Bible is screaming at us. That is not true. And it's one of the, man, it's one of the greatest things that God has ever done for us that tell us that we're not enough because every single one of us will get to the day when we absolutely know we're not enough. When we don't have enough to go on, we don't have enough to be faithful, we don't have enough to love, we don't have enough to continue, and if our society tells you you can be enough, what do you do on that day when you know you're not enough? When you know, you know, it it doesn't feel like you can even go on. I'm not enough to carry this burden. Man, God did us a favor to show us we're not enough, to show us that no other God and no other idol and no amount of effort and no force of willpower will ever accomplish what we need, will never accomplish our salvation, never And that from the beginning, God was always pointing to a plan of redemption where he would be everything that we need. 
The God who is holy. The God who is love. The God who is compassion. The God who is grace. He doesn't just have grace. He is grace. The God who is mercy. The God who is justice. He's saying, come to me. Worship me. Worship me in this way. Give me glory because I will be everything that you need. You don't have to do this alone. You don't have to bear this alone. You don't have to be good enough. My son came for you. I'll be good enough. Man, that's the beauty of what God is doing here. He's setting up a law that they can't follow to show us where true salvation comes from. That from the beginning, God was always pointing to a plan to be everything we needed. Jesus says that by his blood, the new covenant comes. What Jesus is really saying is by my life and by my death and by my resurrected life, I will show you what true worship of God is. For I am your better covenant. I am your perfect mediator. I am the perfect picture of God's holiness. I am the one that will make you holy before a holy God. I will be your path. I will be your bridge to the presence of God. I will be your righteous requirement of the law. I will resurrect you as my holy people and my priest. And I will make you capable of displaying the glory of my Father to a lost and broken world. I am That's what all of this is pointing to. You are never supposed to be enough because Jesus wants to be all of these things for you, in you, through you, to carry you, to help you, to empower you. He says, I'll take you from sinners to true worshipers of the one and only King of kings and the Lord of lords. No, they couldn't truly be God's holy people. They couldn't truly be his kingdom of priests. But you know who can? We can, church. We can. We can because Christ was everything that we needed to be transformed into the holy people of God. That can come fully into the presence of God because by him making us holy, the Holy Spirit now lives with inside of us. And we can be people who truly worship God because our Savior has made us righteous by his blood and by his broken body. And we can because now we have a Savior who is sitting at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us as our perfect mediator, representing us to the Father and representing the Father for us until the day that he returns to make all things new. We don't need Moses, and we don't need to rely on the law for our righteousness because we have Jesus Christ. Church, worshiping is not simply singing songs on Sunday morning. Worship is looking at your life and asking, how can I see Christ's holiness, his holiness in me in every aspect of my life? How can I use those things to be God's priest, to be his representation of his glory to a lost and broken world? Worship is living your life as a living sacrifice because of what Christ has sacrificed for you. That's what a living sacrifice means. All of your life seeking to psych, how can I give this aspect of my life for God's glory? How can I walk in holiness because Christ is empowering it in me? How can I walk in, how can I walk in holiness at my job, at my work, with my kids, with my friends, what, whatever aspect of your life we're talking about? And then when you just, man, when you just feel like you're just too sinful or when you feel like, You're just not holy enough. Or when you want to draw closer to God, but it's just difficult. 
or when you need someone to just help you understand God more deeply and to understand how much God loves you, when you need to have more confidence to come boldly before your God, you remember, you remember, church, that Jesus is your better covenant. Jesus is your perfect mediator. Jesus is your holiness. Jesus is your fulfillment of the law. Jesus is your bridge to the presence of God, and Jesus is your resurrected life. He is your resurrected life, making you fully capable, fully capable of worshiping God with all of your life and capable of spreading his glory and his majesty to a lost and broken world. Jesus is the I am, and Jesus will help you, man, he will make you a worshiper of God who worships him rightly and properly, and he will create in you the ability to be a disciple maker, to be a priest, to go into our city, to go into our neighborhoods, to go into your neighborhood, to go into your workplace, or go halfway across the world to spread his glory. So the question is, will you trust him in that? Will you trust him to be the fulfillment of all those things? I pray that you will. Pray with me, church. Oh, Heavenly Father, how can all this be true? I just read a passage like chapter 19. We read it together. We talk about it. But we just see how serious your holiness is. How seriously you take it. How seriously you require us to take your holiness. Yet we fail. And we take it for granted. Or we take advantage. Or we walk in apathy. Yet Jesus, you knew all of those things. And you still came. You knew that we wouldn't be enough, so you came to be enough for us. God, help us never to get tired of that story. Because I think so many of us in the room, we know, we know we're not good enough. And so God, I pray that you would help us to stop listening to the world and what the world says we're supposed to be or supposed to do and start listening to you, the great I am. That we would believe that you are that for us, the I am who can accomplish everything and anything through us who you have made holy through your son, Jesus Christ. So God, as we, as we go out through the rest of this week, as we go throughout the rest of this series, God, I pray that you would teach us what it is to worship you. Not to just sing. Singing is amazing. It's a th- something that we can do to worship you. But like, God, that you would show us what it means to worship you with every aspect of our lives. Living sacrifices given to you to represent your glory to a lost and broken world. God, help us. Help us to desire that. Help us to want that. Help us to not let our busyness or our sin or our apathy or our whatever else it is get in the way of being who you've called us to be. Your holy people and your kingdom of priests. Your disciple makers your evangelists, your image on this earth. God, we need your help. And we're so thankful that you're there to help us. As the Bible says, to be our helper. So God, we pray for your help. And help Freshwater to be a beacon of light. A beacon in our city that displays your glory. God, transform us to be like your son through proper worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, if you need prayer, I'll be standing over there with Corey. Um, If you need prayer, please come over, talk with us, pray with us. If you just need to talk, whatever you need, you can come over. We would love to pray with you, engage with you in any way. Otherwise, why don't you stand and let's worship our God together. Mm